0: Trying to come up with better metrics that are indicative of long-term value for both users and society, I think is job number one for Facebook and any organization. It's something actually we're working on at the Institute because some of the work that we did previously was effective at moving people's subjective experiences. So reducing bad experiences with content, not just uh, removing hate speech. It, we think it's important to measure people's bad experiences in general across platforms and try to incentivize companies both to create fewer bad experiences and more good experiences. So the first thing I would do would be to uh, to work on the metrics that Facebook is is working with and try to bend them towards being more in service of um, user value and less, uh, you know, I, I legitimately many people will say that engagement often correlates with user value, but it doesn't always correlate with user value. And so the more we can make those two things closer together, what what, what platforms are optimizing for and what users and society uh, find valuable, the, the better the outcomes will be.
1: I'm Alan Rosenstein, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Minnesota and Senior Editor at Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, March 27th, 2023. Today, we're bringing you an episode of Arbiters of Truth, our series on the information ecosystem. My co-host Quinta Jurassic and I spoke with Ravi Iyer, the Managing Director of the Psychology of Technology Institute at the University of Southern California's Neely Center. Earlier in his career, Ravi held a number of positions at Meta, where he worked to make Facebook's algorithm provide actual value, not just quote-unquote engagement to users. We spoke with Ravi about why he thinks that content moderation is a dead end, and why thinking about the design of technology is the way forward, to make sure the technology serves us and not the other way around. It's the Lawfare Podcast, March twenty-seven. Ravi Ayer on how to improve technology through design. Before you became the managing director of the Psychology of Technology Institute, you worked at uh, Facebook. I- I'm curious, you know, to the extent that you can talk about it, what did you do there, and especially how did that experience inform what you're doing now?
0: Yeah, it was very formative, uh, and I did a lot of things there. Uh, I actually started working on their polarization efforts. I started as a data science manager in newsfeed Feed Integrity. Uh, there was a Wall Street Journal article about some of those polarization efforts and how they were deprecated. And so I had to do a lot of soul searching. What was I going to do? How was I going to, uh, you know, I'd move my family up here. I cared about these issues a lot. I still wanted to make progress. Uh, and, you know, there was an opportunity to make progress in many different ways. I became a, a research manager uh, because I wanted to be able to question our metrics, not necessarily just take them at face value. A lot of what I did in data science was somewhat like being an accountant. You know, I I, I built dashboards. I helped count, you know, the engagement on our platform. And I realized that um, some of the things we were counting, you know, I could drive um, engagement bait to zero, or I could drive, uh, you know, not, not me, but like maybe we we as a company could drive something like engagement bait to zero, but maybe we wouldn't actually be solving the problems with sensationalism that exists in the world. So uh, I, I eventually became a research manager, which allowed me to talk to users and ask them if their definitions of some of these constructs map to our definitions internally. And then I eventually realized that a lot of the work we were doing was more reactive. It was like, you know, people are doing these things and we are trying to enforce upon them And that has uh, clear limitations as I learned over my experience. So I started to move to more proactive work. Um, How can we change the incentives of the system? How can we change the design of our system? Uh, I became a product manager on the AI team and worked more on like the core algorithms and uh, a lot of the best work I think that we did was really in that, you know, reforming the design of our system. And that's kind of what I bring to, um, you know, my current role at the Psychology Technology Institute and, and USC's Neely Center, really that design focus. Um, and there's a lot of energy in the world, like people who care about these issues, trying to make them better. I think just, you know, if I can contribute a little bit of that experience towards um, making those ideas and that energy more concrete, I'm happy to do so.
1: So say, say more about what this institute is and, you know, how it, structures, what its goals are, how it works. What is this new phase in your professional life?
0: Yeah. So the Psychology Technology Institute is the the goal of our institute is to improve the human technology relationship, and we focus on technology in part because uh, it's as powerful shaping effects on society and on individual uh, psychological health. Um, we focus on psychology because I think a lot of our interactions with technology are informed by the peculiarities of how human beings interact with things, and uh, it's a project of uh, USC's Neely Center, also in collaboration with. Um, Berkeley's House uh, School of Business, You know we have a few projects to try to improve the human tech relationship. One of them is repairing social media. Another one, uh, people often think of social media as the first instance of AI value alignment or value misalignment. So um, if you listen to people talk about value misalignment, they'll talk about um, you know how social media algorithms maybe have the wrong objective function that isn't aligned with the outcomes we want in society. But we have a broader work stream around AI value alignment. And then we have a third work stream around um, you know, designing a healthy mixed reality space. and But all of them have that flavor of trying to anticipate, you know, what are the problems, the psychological problems, that, you know, both the individual level and the societal level that we can address and, and how can we improve the human tech relationship to, to improve those outcomes.
2: So we asked you on, in part because of an essay that you wrote arguing that, and I'll, I'll quote you, content moderation is a dead end. That sounds like a pretty provocative statement. What do you mean by that?
0: So... It was intentionally chosen to, I mean, somewhat to be provocative, but also I didn't say worthless, you know, I didn't say uh, bad. I meant dead end that a lot of good work is done by content moderators through content moderation processes, but it won't lead us to the, the end goal that we often want. And so a lot of times we put the responsibility for improving social media's impact on society or technology's impact on society on moderation processes. And so we have this idea that people can say things on the internet. And then if they cross a line that is defined in some policy, we will take some action against them. We will moderate their speech. And... In some cases, that's important. There are some things that I think we all agree would be uh, important for us to to remove or enforce upon. But there are a lot of things that I think we have this idea that they are easy decisions. Things like hate speech. Um, if I if I say like moderate hate speech, a lot of people agree with that in principle, but they probably have different ideas of what actually hate speech means, and and all of their ideas probably don't map to what actually. If you were actually to read a random sample of hate speech, that exists on a platform, it would actually be very different than what you have in your head. And so, you know, there've been sort of well-known articles uh, about, you know, uh, men are scum or men are trash, right? That's a lot of like what actually qualifies as hate speech that, you know, if you're trying to drive down a hate speech metric, you end up removing a lot of that stuff as opposed to, you know, actively uh, disparaging a minority group. The people who actually want to actively disparage minority groups don't actually talk in the terms of hate speech. They actually talk in terms of fear more often than hate. Um, So it's really easy to sensationalize a crime committed by someone of a minority group, for example, it's hard to distinguish that from, say, your average 11 o'clock news broadcast. So, it, you know, the, the lines are, you know, you, you end up with this content moderation focus over enforcing on a lot of stuff that nobody cares about, things like men are trash, and then under enforcing on a lot of stuff that actually is harmful, things like, you know, sensationalizing a crime committed by someone of a minority group. And so, therefore, it's just not the right tool for improving the impact on society that we're trying to have. And as such, it is a dead end in in my
2: Yeah, so I I find this interesting because it it feels like in many ways the work of content moderation or trust and safety, as it's often called in the industry, is kind of coming into its own as a field. And in this essay where you write about content moderation being a dead end, you also write about attending multiple conferences for trust and safety professionals. Those are new. (laughs) There are professional organizations. All of these are new developments, and it, it has seemed to me like the field is sort of coming into its own and maturing really rapidly. So I'm curious how your argument fits into that kind of maturation.
0: Yes, there are a lot of conferences about trust and safety that focus on content moderation. I feel like a lot of the people at those conferences would share my perspective. And I do think that the maturation of the space will hopefully lead more people to, you know, think about content moderation and trust and safety as a wider field, not something that's just focused on removing the worst of the worst, but also something that's involved in the design of systems. How do we actually prevent systems from, from incentivizing negative behavior? And how can we design an ecosystem where content moderation is the thing we do as a last resort, not the first thing that we reach for uh, when something is not going right?
2: Yeah, I mean, in some ways, it feels like this kind of movement away from focusing on individual decisions about content and more on design, it feels to me like I've been seeing it build on a bunch of different corners for a while. So Evelyn Dueck, who's my former co-host on this podcast and is now at Stanford, um, had a paper last year arguing that legal scholars should think about content moderation in terms of administrative law, regulating sort of huge structures instead of one-on-one decisions. Uh, There's been a recent focus in Congress to focus on algorithmic design. The Supreme Court, obviously, just heard a case on the matter. So it seems like there's that shift, just coming from a lot of different places. I mean, I'm curious if you have any thoughts about why now, whether from your own thinking about this or just what you're seeing within these spaces.
0: Well, I think, what you know, like I said, that when you actually wrestle with these issues, I think you realize the impossibility of moderating speech. So it's in principle, it sounds like a good idea to create objective policies and objective rules and transparency about how you're enforcing these policies. But then you, there's always a case that you know, escapes your, your reach, and you try to change your policies to to fit that, that speech, and, and eventually it ends up being a slippery slope. So, you know, a good example is like the war in Ukraine, right? Like, so we, we might all agree that it's bad to call for violence against members of a group. But then when you're being bombed by another country, then like, and you say some, you know, 20 minute deep thoughts about, you know, all the things that are going on in your life, and you end it with some, you know, desire to defend your country against another group and and say something that is a call to violence against that group. You know, I, I think a lot of people would consider it normative in all settings for people who are undergoing conflict, whether you're in Israel, whether you're in Palestine, whether you're in Ukraine, to say certain things in those contexts. So I think um, there's, a, there's a great research by the uh, Dangerous Speech Project, which and there's a pie graph that I often refer to about like, what makes something dangerous. And, you know, just one wedge of that pie graph is like what people say a lot of the the thing that makes something dangerous is about who you're saying it to the context it's being said in um who's saying it i think we so i think everyone is just realizing that the speech paradigm the content paradigm is difficult and so i think everyone is searching for alternatives and that's why i think you're seeing a lot of efforts now i do think that you know their efforts go in different directions like there's people who work on governance there are people who work on design as a former product manager i think i'm hopeful that you know and also from a psychology angle, right? Like a lot of psychology can under, help understand how human beings interact with user interfaces. I think we have a lot to contribute in the design realm. So that's where I've been focusing a lot of our efforts.
1: So we spent some time now talking about content moderation as a, a dead end, right? It's It's useful to an extent, but it won't get us to the promised land. So what is the alternative? Right? Um, You know, what is it that you and and your colleagues at the Institute are kind of proposing at, let's start, let's start with it at a high level. And then I think we can just Mm -hmm. kind of dive into a bunch of examples, because that might be the kind of most interesting thing to talk about.
0: Yeah, so I mean, I I wrote a post called regulate design, not speech. um, And it builds upon, again, you you mentioned that other people have had this thought. So I don't want to Pretend that like I'm the only person who's who's uh who thought of this. You know, the the Center for Humane Technology, for example, often uses the analogy of building codes. And so does New Public often uses the analogy of, of designing spaces that are healthy for people. So I think many, you know, several people have, have had this analogy of designing a healthy space. I think what we what um, we can help also bring to this is data from the platform. So there are some things that platforms have done that have had measurable. Benefits to um, you know the metrics that are indicative of, of of a healthier dialogue, so you know there was a recent Wall Street Journal article about deprecating engagement incentives, so we deprecated comment and share predictions for political content. And that led to measurable decreases in bullying, misinformation, graphic content. It led to increases in the perception that content was more worth their time. It did cost some amount of usage of the platform, but it was a cost deemed worth paying for, for those benefits. So, so that's the kind of thing that I think can be beneficial.
1: Yeah, and, and let me just let, let's just kind of go deeper into that. I, I think yeah. just kind of case studies might be really helpful. So w- what were these predictions that 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 existed and and you know what what were they functioning? what What purpose were they functioning?
0: So you know your newsfeed could contain thousands, tens of thousands of pieces of content. Every group that you're in, you know, every piece of content in those groups could potentially be given to you in that newsfeed. So ranking of newsfeed is a powerful lever for shaping what people see or don't see. And one of the the predictions used to prioritize content, um, especially political content, is whether uh, people will comment on something and whether people will share something. So for political content, those types of predictions were removed from the incentives. And that is what led to these measurable increases. And I think, you know, there's that specific idea, but I think there's a broader principle here where, you know, there are different kinds of engagement you can optimize for, right? So like, uh, I could optimize for a love reaction, or I could optimize for a comment. And one is more an explicit desire. It's explicit level of like something that I find positive. Whereas we've all been in cases where, you know, we see a piece of content, we comment, you know, I'm, I don't agree with this. And then maybe somebody else comments back that they disagree with my comment and uh, and I comment back and reply to them. Um, so it's oftentimes comments, you know, could be positive. They could be negative. Whereas some kinds of behaviors like love reactions are clearly positive behaviors. And so the broader principle is just removing some of these incentives that are more pure engagement in favor of engagement that is more indicative of explicit user preference because not everything we engage with is something we actually value. You know, a lot of the, the analogy sometimes people use is uh, potato chips versus uh, like kale. You know, I will eat potato chips, but I don't aspire to eat more potato chips. I will engage with them if you give them to me. But what I really want is to eat healthier. And so I will, um, if you if you give me like a, a more considered choice, I I, I will choose healthier Food And if you give people a more considered choice, they will often choose healthier content versus just trying to assume whatever they engage with is what they want
1: so so let's say Zuckerberg calls you right after he listens to this episode. I'm sure he's a, a devoted listener uh, to our podcast uh, and he says, uh, Ravi, come back, I need you to fix Facebook. I'm putting you in charge like what is the first thing or like what are the top three things that you do, right either in terms of whether it's like changing the guts of the algorithm, or maybe it's changed something about the organization itself. I mean, and, and what I'm trying to get at is, you know, what do you think are kind of the highest impact, highest leverage mm-hmm. dials to, to turn to improve design?
0: So I think everything at Facebook and actually most tech companies, uh, it, you know, there's this idea that we should measure what matters, there's this idea that people are constantly doing these A-B tests to optimize things for for outcomes, and they all hinge upon having the right metrics. So, the the most important thing that any organization can do is have metrics that really indi- that are indicative of the true goal, and that's kind of you know in line with that value alignment uh, work that I mentioned previously. If you have the wrong sort of objective function, then everything will be pointed in the wrong direction. If you have the right objective function, then your your engineers, your product work all points it in the right direction. So, trying to come up with better metrics that are indicative of long-term value for both users and society, I think is job number one for Facebook and any organization. It's something actually we're working on at the Institute because some of the work that we did previously was effective at moving people's subjective experiences. So reducing bad experiences with content, not just uh, removing hate speech. It, we think it's important to measure people's bad experiences in general across platforms and try to incentivize companies both to create fewer bad experiences and more good experiences. So the first thing I would do if if this theoretical call happened would be to uh, to work on the metrics that facebook is is working with and try to bend them towards being more in service of um, user value and less uh, you know I, I legitimately many people will say, that engagement often correlates with user value, but it doesn't always correlate with user value. And so the more we can make those two things closer together, what, what, what platforms are optimizing for and what users and society uh, find valuable, the, the better the outcomes will be.
2: So I think that one one question that raises for me is, you know, why companies aren't doing that already. What what you said, you know, it sounds very convincing. It sounds like a better experience for everybody. I have been doing a bunch of work on the January 6th committee recently, and the Washington Post published a... A draft memo that was not released by the staffers who were working on the social media end of the operation. And some of their findings had to do with why, in their view, major social media companies, so including Meta, Twitter, YouTube, others, didn't do more to kind of suppress or limit the circulation of or ban speech that was, you know, encouraging violence in advance of the insurrection. And they pointed to political pressure on the platforms, as well as they they thought this was less important, but also there's this sort of question of financial incentives. Obviously, that's a very specific and probably unique example, but I do think it speaks to kind of the larger cross-cutting pressures that these companies face. So I'm curious if you have any thoughts on that and what pressures might exist that would potentially keep companies from kind of moving in the direction that you suggest in terms of what metrics they're optimizing for.
0: Yeah, I, I actually think, you know, like, the, the idea of preventing the circulation of content that is harmful, sort of puts you back in the frame of content moderation. And I don't think there are any great answers there. So, you know, there's lots of ways that people are able to uh, encourage those kinds of gatherings without misinforming people. Uh, so, you know, the, the best way to get people to doubt an election is to take a, an instance of voter fraud that does exist in our in our giant system. There are some instances of it of fraud, and make it seem like it's more common than it is. So you don't have to lie to people to mislead them. So in that world, how do you moderate? You know, how, wh- where do you actually draw the line? Do you say that people can't draw any doubt about any election process? And and you know, there are places in the world where there are elections processes that do need to be questioned to a greater degree. And so I don't think anyone can be comfortable drawing the line there about like, to what degree are you allowed to question the election process and in, in any sort of uh, principled way. So uh, so I, I actually don't see that as a case of, um, you know, business pressure. I actually think companies would probably do the right thing if they knew what the right thing was. The problem is that they have content moderation as the tool to solve it, and it's the wrong tool. The question I might ask would be, um, what, is, what is the, the system that we designed that got us to the place we're at. So wh- wh- why do we have these polarized groups that are so ready to believe these kinds of, of messages and, and how could we create a system which doesn't incentivize people to say things that may, may not even believe in order to get more attention uh, that might be activating these groups. Uh, so I, the, the speech of the individual users I think is less of an issue. It's more the incentives that we're creating in the system that might, that might be leading these people to, to, to be more receptive to these messages.
1: One of the arguments that you make is that changes to the design of these platforms rather than changes to the content moderation practices would be more kind of protective of free expression. Um, and I'm curious sort of if you can sort of say more about that and in particular, mm-hmm. you know, what about the concern that, you know, at least with content moderation, you are dealing with the kind of outputs of people's quote unquote engagement on the platform. Uh, whereas if you're tinkering with the design, you are actually affecting quite deeply their thought itself, right? In the sense of what they read and then what they decide to say, and so um, you know it may be it may be an even more insidious kind of restriction on on free mm-hmm. expression potentially.
0: So, I think to to answer that fully, I think we have to accept that all design has an effect on the speech and the thoughts and the the behaviors that people have on a platform. So uh, there is no such thing as a neutral design. Every space will affect how users are going to interact with in that space. Like how anonymous are users? Um, how, how are the other people represented? Is it voice versus uh, text? Um, am I interacting with people I know versus people I don't know? Is there um, a way for people to give positive and negative feedback or just positive feedback? All of these things, change our behavior and the spaces and the status quo is already affecting our behavior. So I think acknowledging that everything that is already going on at platforms for good and bad is affecting people's thoughts and behaviors and speech, and then not privileging the status quo is where I'd start that conversation. And then, yes, you, you, I think you have to be thoughtful and you don't want to be, um, you know, there is no like... Natural way to rank content it's not like it's the the status quo should be to rank things based on comments and shares versus love reactions versus anything else right like that those are decisions that people made and they can be unmade and so i i I think um it's definitely a less insidious way than uh actually think you know trying to moderate what people say to think about is this the design of my system incentivizing you know, more informative, more truthful speech, uh, or less informative, less truthful speech.
2: I'm interested in what role transparency might play um, in, in all this, in your view, because at least my perception, especially around a lot of conversations around algorithmic design recently, you know, there's you see complaints from people who are saying that their their material is being suppressed and they don't understand why and that does i think go to design in the way that you're talking about and in that sense you know some of the issue seems to be just that these decisions are opaque people don't know how the particular algorithm is is working what it's optimizing for how to make sure that their that you know their friends see their material so is part of this conversation then, does it also depend on greater willingness on the part of platforms to provide insight into sort of the inner working so people can understand the design choices being made?
0: Yeah, 100%. So uh, one thing I'm working on uh, uh, with a colleague of mine, uh, Nathaniel Lubin, is a proposal to get more access to the A-B tests that platforms run. Because the systems are so complex that it's really hard for anyone to understand what a change might be inducing in the platform without running an experiment to to understand what those effects are. You know, a lot of the most impactful things uh, that I've read in the Facebook papers and the things that have informed my understanding of, you know, my recommendations are just understanding like these experiments that people have done and what the effects of, for example, removing comment and share predictions are on, uh, you know, I, I don't think it's like, completely obvious what those effects would be. And so I think in a complex system, really getting access and transparency into all the tests and data that platforms have as to the uh, experiments that they have done uh, would be really in- important for making the best design decisions we we can.
1: So it it strikes me, though, that once you start talking about transparency, which I totally agree, for the record, is very important here, then... It's very easy to start thinking bigger and start thinking, well, you know, to the extent that these algorithms and these practices run our lives, they should be transparent. But more than just that, we should have a say in which ones we use. Um, And that say should be more than just, you know, which platform do we decide to give all our data to? And and I think it's very easy to go from there and to start asking really tough questions about whether or not the model of, you know, large, closed, for-profit platforms is ever going to to work, right? if they're ever really going to be able to act in in this way. And and later in the conversation, I want to ask about your thoughts about government regulation. But for now, I'm curious what you think about alternative models of platforms themselves. And so the one I have in mind Mm -hmm. in particular is Mastodon, uh, which Mm -hmm. is the decentralized Twitter alternative and other platforms within the so-called Fediverse. I wrote a paper about this a few months ago, looking at how Mastodon does content moderation. And one of the notable things that struck me was that uh, because every Mastodon instance can have its own content moderation problem by pushing the choices down sort of to more local levels, you can tamp down a little bit on the conflict because you're not trying to apply one model for, uh, for everything. And you know, this the, what goes for content moderation could also go for design. Different instances could decide to do have different policies with regard to what you can, you know, retweet or how you can do this and how you can do that. So I, I am curious. And when you look at these models, do you think that they are a possible way forward, a possible replacement? Uh, or do you think we're just never going to get rid of the, the Facebooks and the TikToks and the Twitters of the world? And so we do have to fundamentally figure out how to fix them.
0: Uh, I I tend to take an all of the above approach. I'm really excited by all the energy in alternative platforms. Uh, I do think that you know places like Mastodon, places like T Two Social, the 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 Narwhal project. um, There's lots of energy around it, and I'm excited. I'm hopeful that that people will have alternatives. There's lots of people putting energy into smaller spaces, uh, like the French Porch Forum. So I, I do think that having alternative spaces is something we should invest in, even as we also try to improve the platforms, the larger platforms that we have. And I'm hopeful that you know certain design choices that might be beneficial can both inform the big platforms and the smaller platforms. So you know, like I, I mentioned, uh, not optimizing for engagement and optimizing for what users you know explicitly value you know, some of these platforms can experiment with new user interfaces that ask users what they explicitly value in more direct ways. So the Narwhal Project, for example, has, uh, you know, buttons that say like, that was clarifying, or that was new to me. So there are all sorts of ways that platforms can like, try to extract, like that was a really great experience from a user that I'm really excited for platforms to experiment with. And then maybe, you know, Facebook and TikTok and other platforms will be like, oh, like that that's great. I, I, maybe we can adopt that as well. So uh, yeah, I, I personally take a bit of an all of the above approach. I'm not sure what's going to win, but I would love people to, I'm, I'm really excited for the experimentation and I'm really excited for the learning that we will all get from that experimentation.
2: I love the idea of a that was clarifying button. That, that sounds yep. delightful. I think mostly now I just use bookmarks on Twitter for that. <laughs> um, so I, I wanted to make sure that we touched on the all important Section 230 and the Gonzalez v. Google case which I mentioned briefly before. And I'm curious for your thoughts on how this interacts with those issues. So just a brief overview before we dive in. Um, Section 230, of course, as listeners are probably familiar by now, has to do with platform immunity for third-party content. And Gonzalez is is I think in, in many ways really does touch to these questions of design, insofar as the question before the court was to what extent a platform's algorithmic design can be used to kind of pierce that immunity shield from section 230? That's a very high-level and somewhat clumsy overview. So with all that on the table, how do how do you think about focusing on design issues and how does that interact with
0: 230? So, you know. Full transparency, I'm not a lawyer, so I'm going to say my opinion, but, you know, uh, feel free. uh, I'm not either, so you're good.
1: And and, and to be clear, even (laughs) even the lawyers can't figure it out. It's like a two lawyer, three opinions kind of situation. So go nuts.
0: But- I think that the analogy of building codes is is generative here. So like, you know, if I build a building, we don't hold you responsible for every bad thing that could happen in that building. The building could go up in flames. We don't hold you responsible for the building going up in flames. We do hold you responsible if you predictably make the building flammable. And then there, the question is like, what does it mean to be like predictably or to be negligent in that case? Where, where What does it mean to have designed a building that is contrary to the standards that that we understand to be a safe construction of a building? And I think that there are practices that increasingly we understand to be those that make a online space more flammable or more likely to lead to uh, destructive you know illegal unhealthy uh, content being widely distributed and so insofar as that is the case I think that is a line that one can draw an analogy that that can be generative and and, and I don't think that necessarily just has to apply at the level of uh, federal law and section 2 I think it can be helpful for like untying that knot you know my reading of, of some of the those arguments was like the Supreme court justices were looking for like a line to draw. And I think this is at least an example of a line one could draw, right? Like if you are doing a uh, you're not responsible for the wide distribution of content that is, is illegal, but you are responsible if you make design choices that could predictably lead to a uh, broad distribution of that content. And that's where like having the platform AB test would like really help us understand, like, is that something that we, we can say, you know, in a reproducible fashion, will generally lead to you know flammable online spaces. But even if it doesn't apply at like the federal level, for uh, I, I think you know the same sort of analogy can also be applied at app stores, um, who are also have an interest in like uh, apps that are that are safer for the users that that uh, use them. I you know I think states are increasingly adopting design codes uh, as as uh, laws, and then even internationally, I think people are like. You know, there are often these like general laws that say like platforms will undertake risk assessments. And I think the actual way that a, a risk assessment should be done is is sort of analogous to how we understand, you know, what is a flammable or a not flammable building.
1: So I, I really like this this analogy of the of the building code. And and I will say, and I'll just I'll put a marker down and I'll make a prediction and Quinta, you can hold me accountable to it in five years. That five years when we look back or when we look at the sort of legal landscape there will be building codes somehow, right? There, there, this is basically how it will operate, that there will be platform design codes and that it'll act kind of like a safe harbor. Now, that being said, the the hard question, of course, is what do the building codes contain and who writes those building codes? And, and so I want to ask you what your thoughts are there, right? Uh, again, mm-hmm. uh, both on the content, but maybe even more importantly on who writes the building codes, because it seems like you could have building, you know, you, you could have the platforms themselves come together and have like a voluntary code of best practices. You could have the federal government do it, either through legislation or regulation, you could have state governments do it. And that raises an interesting question about do you want states to do it, potentially have different standards. And, I, you know, I think if you look at the examples of Florida and Texas and their social media regulations, maybe not the best thought out. Do you want judges to do it through a kind of a common law process? And or are judge just going to do a good job? So I, I, that's kind of what I want to push you on a little bit of like, who's going to be writing the building codes?
0: Well, I mean, the reality is everyone's going to write building codes uh, just like, I mean, everybody writes building codes now, right? Like there are there are different standards in some countries than in other countries, but there's also some commonality, right? And and that commonality is informed by science, right? So by physics, by understanding like, you know, what things are flammable and what things are not flammable. And so in some ways, the getting access to all the uh, experimentation that is done at platforms and understanding like the results of that is sort of understanding the laws of physics the online space and those will inform the building codes that exists, you know, at various levels and in various places. So, rather than thinking about it from a like who's going to build it, trying to build the best evidence possible for like what those building codes should contain. That hopefully all of the the players in the space, you know, whether you're an international body or whether you're you know, the federal government or whether you're at the state level or whether you're at an app store, when you're designing your building codes, hopefully we can build a body of evidence that will be convincing across those, those various groups. And th- certainly they're going to take that information and, and run with it in different directions. But the more, you know, we as sort of the, um, the behavioral scientists in our network, along with the technologists in our network, can help, you know, inform that debate with the best evidence possible, um, I do think there'll be some commonality, just like there's commonality in building codes already.
2: Yeah. So one possibility you mentioned is the role of app stores. And I'd be really interested to hear you talk more about how that might work and why it would make sense for app stores to kind of step in here and be the... I'm not sure whether they would be the building code designer or the building code enforcer, but one or the other or both.
0: Well, app stores already have building codes to some degree, right? Like there are... uh, If you build an app, there are guidelines for how you do it. And so one example of a guideline is like apps, if you have user generated content, you need to have some mechanism for users to report that content as being offensive or violating policies or harmful in some way. It doesn't specify exactly how that reporting mechanism should take place. So it could be buried three menus deep and and not be particularly impactful. But you can imagine an app store saying like, look, we have this thing, it's not having the effect we want. We'd like to also update our, our policies to make those that negative feedback more visible. And there is data suggesting that like making more broad negative feedback can be really transformative in terms of you know not relying on content moderation. If you can give users the ability to say, like, I didn't like that, um, that can be a really powerful lever for uh, finding things that you know don't violate a policy, but are still causing bad experiences for people and for society. So you could, you know, app stores already have design codes to some degree, and it's just uh, that's one reason why I think it's like a, a good lever. It's, it's it's something they're already doing. You know, they're already like interested in the privacy of users. You know, an example is. Um, in some countries, it's actually easier for you to to lock your profile and to make your your social media profile private than in other countries. In part because in some countries there there's more sensitivity, you know, to being public. There's no reason like that, you know, access couldn't be like more widely available, and that app stores couldn't, as part of their existing privacy efforts, just mandate more visibility of those uh, of of taking control of your privacy. So. There are already efforts at app stores that are analogous to what we you know, some of the the recommendations I'm making as far as design codes, and and that's why I think it's a, a fruitful area to pursue.
2: Yeah. So one thing I was curious about with the app store idea is, you know, there's there's been some writing and argumentation that asking app stores to take more of a, a role in sort of curating good spaces online risks giving them a real power over discourse like for example uh once elon musk bought twitter there was a lot of discussion about whether the twitter app might potentially be booted out of the app store and there are reasons why that might have been a justifiable decision it didn't end up happening but it also would have you know made it substantially difficult for a lot of people to use Twitter. And that I think raises questions about, you know, the, the question that is always on our minds in these discussions, which is who is making these decisions. Um, so I'm curious how you think through that issue and whether you think that focusing more on design choices, building codes, rather than saying, you know, hey, there sure is a lot of hate speech on this platform mitigates that issue of you know, let, let's let's call it censorship to be provocative. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I tend to take
0: an all of the above approach. So I think the important thing that we can do as as uh, behavioral scientists is provide the best evidence possible that people can take up at various levels. Um, and so like what effort we have actually is um, to do a tracking poll. So you, you see people like with Elon Musk taking over Twitter, or like, Oh my! My Twitter feed's gotten so much better. You know that's great. Uh, and then people will be like, "Well, I, I don't. You know, my Twitter feed's worse." So I think his changes have been for the for the worse. And you know, there's a more systematic way to do this. Obviously, like you could like systematically poll people in society and ask them, like, "Are you having better experiences or worse experiences since uh, Elon Musk took it over?" And so one thing we are working on is is a systematic tracking poll of people's experience that can help us understand if you know, yeah, you know, it versus saying like there sure is a lot of hate speech, like. Well, a a uh, you know a scientific example of the United States has reported experiencing a lot of hate speech, right? Sort of the equivalent of that. But what you're going to do about that is, is is a separate question from like you know noticing that there is uh, a lot of bad experiences with one app or another. And then and 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 I think yes, what you're going to do about that? I don't think Apple or app stores want to wade into the speech wars. I don't. You know, I don't think the Supreme Court wants to. Like, nobody wants. Platforms don't want to do it. Nobody wants to be in the speech wars, right? Uh, I think the design angle as far as what you do about it can give you a, a much better sense, a uh, a much better toolbox to address these things in ways that that feel more legitimate, that don't feel like censorship. And so, you know, our job really is to, to provide the best evidence possible, whether it's like these platforms are creating worse experiences than those platforms, or these design choices have led to better outcomes than those design choices. And then whether they get implemented at the App Store level, whether they get implemented by governments, we're hopeful that you know good where they get implemented by platforms themselves right like i think if you if you have like solid evidence for a thing i think the platforms would be glad to do it as well like they're not they're they they just need like that certainty or that legitimacy that society agreeing versus us all disagreeing about what they should do and they're not sure and they're going to get you know hurt for it anyway you know just driving that consensus i think is the first step and then I, i i could see it being implemented at various levels
1: So to end our conversation, I want to turn us from the present and sort of look forward onto the technological frontier a little bit. And one thing that I think is interesting about this debate in this issue space is that the problems are incredibly hard, obviously. And yet the underlying technology is like not that complicated. Like Twitter is not like that complicated technologically. And even the algorithms underlying it, they're not nothing, but like they're still – pretty standard stuff. And even with that, this is so hard. And then you look forward and you look at, just because everyone's talking about it these days, things like chat GP3 and large language models, you know, things that have the potential to just profoundly capture our attention to engage us, right, uh, for, for good or for ill. I'm curious about sort two things in particular. What's what your design thinking would tell you about how we should, and how in particular, let's say, open AI, right, and other developers of these models should think about how they design them. And two, you know, whether, whether it's already too late. I mean, one of the tricky things about this debate about Facebook or Twitter is you know, we're trying to take big established companies and platforms and trying to change their behavior in ways that might be short-term unprofitable or bad for their shareholders. Um, and one might look at ChatGPT and say, look, it's four months old. Like, if there was ever a time to figure this out, we got to figure it out right now. And so, you know, are you optimistic that we can figure out what these design tweaks should be. And then maybe we can finally do it at the right time this time.
0: I'm optimistic that we can at least start asking the right questions. So I, I, you know, the reason I wrote content moderation is a dead end is because I think that's the wrong question. And so there's a way that you could address the risk of these large language models by saying, here are the groups that you can ask it to make a joke about, and here are the groups that you can't. And we've already seen like, Failures in that approach where like, you know, people in India have noticed that, you know, it, it can make a joke about Hindu gods and not about Christian gods. And so there's no line you can draw that will be like the right line to draw. People are going to get mad at you and you're going to draw the wrong line if you take that approach. I think a design approach, and you know, I've seen people talk about this it's really early days, but like, you know, thinking about like, you know, how could I design a system that understands when it's offending people? Like, would it would it have asked Kevin Roos to like leave his wife? if it understood something about like offensiveness and, and, and like, you know, what what are the things that stop us as human beings from engaging in that kind of behavior? And how could I design a system that had the same limits? That's the same kind of question that, you know, I often would ask myself in terms of uh, social media, like, why is misinformation, you know, a a adaptive strategy for many um, publishers on social media, even though in the real world, like I don't walk around lying to people because like, they'll fire me and they'll, they'll think badly. I mean, they'll stop inviting me to dinner parties, right? Like, so, so like there are, there are, there are forces in society and there are forces in these large language models that we could introduce that would, you know, sort of be analogous to those forces in society. And I think, so we can start asking those kinds of questions versus the, like, who can chat GPT make fun of and who can it not, which I think uh, is the wrong question. And so I'm optimistic that like, at least we can shift the conversation in that direction so that's like kind of my I don't know near-term goal is just like you know can we can we get people thinking about AI safety to think in a design way as opposed to in a moderation way you know whether we will succeed or whether it's too late uh, these things are like accelerating so fast that it's it's hard for me to I, I have you know who knows but but uh, but I think if, if we can start thinking in the design direction at least it gives us a shot We're at least we're at least asking the right questions we're not like asking like you know yeah who who should we make fun of and who should we not on un- un- that that to me is a dead end.
2: All right, let's leave it there, Ravi. Thank you so much for coming on.
0: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, a Lawfare podcast series on the information ecosystem. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare podcast feed or in the separate Arbiters of Truth podcast feed. The Lawfare podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath, our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfareblock.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Petya Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Noam Osband of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening.